Good morning. Good morning, sir. How are you? I am doing well. Can't complain. Sun is shining. It's getting warm here. Nice. There's sun in Minneapolis? There is. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Lakes are unfreezing, I think. I just drove past one and I saw some liquid water. Ooh. It's always a good sign. Spring is yes. here. Cool. Were you, are you coming back from your workout? Uh, I didn't work out today, actually. I, I shifted my days, so it's uh, Tuesday and Friday, so I'm not rushing back um, to record this. Uh, oh, nice. Yeah. That seems optimizing. Yeah. Cool. I've been uh, working on delegating more things. Yeah? And it's kind of great. What have you delegated recently? Um, running our like planning meeting for like the development for like engineering and product, basically. Dan asked our designer asked me if I was interested in having him running it, and I was like, "Oh, yeah, actually, that sounds that sounds great." It's it's funny. I have this always this like this dual feeling of like, "Oh, that sounds really great," and also like a little bit of guilt. I think where it's like I kind of feel like I'm cheating or something. Where it's like I can't just delegate everything, right? Or <laughs> like. What, sh- what should I be doing or here? Or can you? <laughs> right. What is your actual job? I mean, that's kind of, you need to morph your job description over time, right? <laughs> yeah. Like, what is it, would you say you do here, Ben? Like, I think uh, my focus is kind of shifting more towards hiring. Like, we have some hires we want to make pretty soon. Uh, so I've been, like, getting ready for that. And that is a thing that would be definitely hard to delegate now, for sure. It's an in- interesting mental thing for me where it's like, can I just give these things to other people and have them get done? That's kind of great, actually. Do you struggle at all with like um, feeling like hesitancy about giving up control or is it more around just like, you know that your team member is capable of doing a really good job. You're just feeling a little weird about like shedding those responsibilities. Yeah, it's kind of like about contributing, I guess, where it's like, is my job just to route the right people to the other other like put jobs to with people and you know, you should talk to this person directly about this or like you like it's it's like this podcast to me where it doesn't really feel like work anymore. Mm-hmm. Where it's mm-hmm. like, am I actually doing useful stuff if that's my job? <laughs> yeah. I think there's still plenty of like hard decision things and like some of them coming up and like CEO re- things that like require CEO to do st- CEO stuff. Um, so I don't, I don't think this will be like a, like a long-term existential thing, but it's just an interesting thing I noticed in my, my own psychology where it's like, I almost kind of feel bad where I'm like, do you want to do that? And it's like, <laughs> I'm like, oh, like surely they don't want to do this because it's work. Right. Like, no, it's fine. It's like, oh yeah, okay, right. That makes sense. Yeah, yeah. It's such a good feeling though when you can truly hand off a task to somebody and not like, not in the way that like you're still directing it and they're they're just acting as an extension of you, but really like, no, you're responsible for this, and which means, you know, I think that's more fulfilling for the person who's doing the job because then that means like, oh no, I actually like I make the calls on this and I own the result of it. And yes, but that feels really good for you. I noticed in my position, you know, because it's like, oh, that's actually a real weight off my mind. Like I can just entrust this to somebody, you know? Absolutely. Yep. It feels great once I do it, actually. It's, it's wonderful. Even if I'm like somewhat concerned that like I could have done it better, it's still kind of like, yeah, but I'm, I don't have to, I don't have to do it now. And so it's, that's, that's great. I remember hearing from someone who'd been at Stripe for a while saying that like, Stripe is very good at giving people almost too much responsibility. Mm-hmm. Like the default is kind of like, yeah, you should, yeah, you're brand new, whatever, go run this project, make it happen. And then like giving people a chance to succeed at that high level. I love that. I think that's totally the right 
direction to bias in. Mm-hmm. You'd rather see people attempt a project that ends up being like too hard for them and not quite make it. I think it's inspiring. And I think a lot of times you don't actually know what you're capable of until someone says, here, here's this hard thing. You should, you should do it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It just keeps life interesting, I think. Yeah. I mean, that's a recipe for making a really fulfilling job for somebody, I think, is if they, they do have that ability to, to either succeed in a big way or potentially fail in a big way. But you can't have, you can't have the opportunity for, for really a fulfilling, successful experience if there's not the chance that something will fail, you know? And yeah. Yeah. And I think it's, I mean, it's, it's kind of like a kindness, I think, to like give someone a shot at that and also to kind of expect a lot out of them. I think like I, my, my favorite professor ever was like kind of a hard ass. And he like, you know, like the first day of class, he's like, you know, if you're someone that needs to get an A in, cl- in your class, like you shouldn't take this because I give out like five a semester out of a class of 300. I think an A means exceptional performance and I'm not, I don't give them out lightly. Also, a hundred of you are going to drop this class in the first week because you're going to find it too hard. And I was just like, oh my God, I can't wait. I love this. <laughs> and it's just like that sort of like being held to a high standard, I, I think is uh, kind of uh, a gift actually. Yeah, right. And that to have that mindset, because I think a lot of people would enter into that and think, oh my gosh, this guy's the worst, you know? But so your initial reaction to that was like, ooh, I love this. Yes. Oh yeah. I was yeah. super excited. Wow. I'd never had someone throw down the gauntlet like that before. Yeah. Like I, I did super well in that class. I mean, I, I got one of the A's, I'll say. Did you get one um, of the A's? Yeah, wow. I did. Look at you. And I was not like an academic achiever generally, you know, like a, that wasn't like a, a big, it was not common for me to like be super motivated in a class. But kind of the fact that he was just like, this is going to be hard. And, you know, who knows if you can do it? I was like, ooh, okay. All right. We'll see. Mm-hmm. And now it's your job. I mean, you're the chief motivator for, for your team, right? And you yeah, feel like that's I, one of your big responsibilities? That's an interesting question. Um, I have not thought of it that way before. I guess that's probably true. I wonder how motivated the team feels on average. Is that stuff I'm supposed to explicitly cultivate? Mm-hmm. Definitely like keeping people inspired, right? Is kind of, that's, that's one aspect of, of leadership, of leading a company so that people are, you know, stay excited and on fire for, for what's happening in the company. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good point. I think having kind of like a, a compelling vision of what the future could look like. Yeah. Seems pretty, pretty much like a CEO job, I would say. Mm-hmm. I don't know that we've, that I've done a great job of, of that, actually. I think I could do a lot more of that. Yeah. I think it becomes more of a challenge as a company matures more. Like when, it, when things are really early and it's a really small group, like that energy is just kind of feels like a naturally occurring thing, you yes, know? Um, totally. Because the growth is exciting. And, and when you get a new big deal and it swings the revenue by a big amount, like there's just a lot of inherent excitement. And it's like, how do you keep, I mean, the company has to grow up and that probably that changes over time what that excitement feels like. But, but you have to keep that energy there or else it, it can, right? It becomes mundane or it can. That's the risk, I guess. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's totally true. Yeah. The stakes feel like lower because things are mostly working. So it's like any individual thing is kind of less of a big deal. Uh, so how, how then do you paint a compelling picture of, a, of big things changing anyway? Yeah. Yeah. And you say like, no, 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 we're, we're just getting going. There's a lot mm-hmm. more awesomeness over here. Let's, let's go. Mm-hmm. And maybe big projects like the, the Linux client are going to be another shot of that. Because you're basically, that's sort of like taking it back to the early days. You're, you're getting, entering totally. a new market. And 
all the excitement that comes with that. Yeah. And I, I think like it seems like Spencer is more fired up than he has been in a while. Working on that new thing and having the new challenge and you know, getting all those like little kind of initial wins. I think it's super motivating. Yeah. I mean, that was honestly part of why we wanted to do the Linux client was just like we were excited by it. Like Spencer was fired up to do it. And it's like, okay, like if, if, if no one had been excited about it, like we, we might have just been like, ah, maybe later. But it was like, no, no, we're going to get some, it could be kind of fun. Right. When you see companies like Basecamp, like rewriting their core product multiple times and releasing different versions, like I think a big part of that is just like the team kind of gets bored and stagnates on if they had just like the one code base that had lived for 20 years and, and that was it then you know people start to start to feel the legacy of that in many ways and like not getting to it's it's harder to implement ex- things that excite you and things that really are going to excite your customers and so they keep you know kind of making these reinvention shifts and i think a large part of that is just so that they they can stay at the top of their craft right yeah i wonder i wonder if they would agree with that statement that they that that's probably why they did it it's just to it's kind of for the for the enjoyment of it or the excitement of it the freshness yeah i th- i mean i think that they're their outside narrative has been has been like you know times change and we fundamentally reinvent and have better ideas about how uh, how to do project management or whatever. But I would kind of push back on that a little bit. Like if like I don't think your ordinary company should should necessarily take lightly the choice of like rewriting the product and rebuilding it. Like normally you can you can just like mutate your product over time to to meet the needs that people have. Like it doesn't feel totally necessary to me that they've cut entirely new versions but i think that there are other benefits to that like like keeping things fresh for them you know totally yep did you see the um the gum road crowdfunding thing yeah well that's kind of interesting thing yeah yeah so if you haven't seen this uh gum road did a uh crowdfunding fundraising event because the rules recently changed so that you can raise up to five million i guess per year i didn't realize it was like time-based but Oh, could, I didn't know you that could either. Do one every year, I guess, if you want. And they sold safes in Gumroad. So basically, if, if Gumroad later does get sold or raises more money, then those people will convert to equity later. The idea of selling a safe as a profitable company that maybe might not raise or like could might not sell for a long time feels interesting to me. Yeah, that vehicle was sort of invented by Y Combinator, right? For for companies that are at the stage where like they have high growth potential and it's too early to value the company. And if they valued it at what it would be, they would probably be selling way too much equity. So it's like it would be unrealistic to try to raise at that such that early stage and and put a value on it, right? But yeah, Gumroad has been around for a long time and is very profitable. So it is an interesting an interesting choice. Yeah. Feels a little bit like free money in a way. Where it's like, if you know you need to fundraise or die, clearly you're going to do a round later. And so the people that, that get in on the safe are going to convert to equity in the future. But if, if Sahil just uh, decides, yeah, I'm going to run this for 10 years, it's like, okay, well, no one in there gets to participate in the profits and the money doesn't come up. And so it's... it's, it's yeah, because there's no dividends issued against safes. Right. right? Exactly. I mean, it's not converted to equity yet. So Yeah, you don't own equity. So Right. That's interesting. I don't know. I don't fully understand what the expectation of return for these 7,000 people who have purchased, you know? Yeah. I mean, like, like all <laughs> investing, it's a bit of a, it's a gamble. It's a bet, right? So 
they're betting that eventually he does raise more or sells that he doesn't just not do those things and that there's and there's risk there's risk that he won't ever do those things and their safes are never worth anything but that's like part of the discount you apply to the value of the the thing but in order to do that yeah you have to basically get get back on the venture track right which which gumroad is such a fascinating story because they were on the venture track and then backed off of that right famously like basically the investors gave back the equity and it kind of returned to a small quote unquote bootstrapped company i feel like in order for these this round of investors to really get a a return they would have to basically do a a series whatever and get back kind of on the on the venture track or go public i suppose or sell yeah or get acquired right mm-hmm. yeah it's interesting yeah it is um so did you buy did you buy any stock I did not know. Buy a safe? <laughs> no, not yeah. a safe. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, apparently they sold they sold everything in twenty four hours, which is quite a thing. It does seem like a, a pretty interesting new phenomenon that we will probably see a lot. Like I think it's actually very cool that you can sell equity like things to your audience slash customers. Like if we were to do something like this, it's kind of it's cool to like oh like our customers could be like kind of partial owners in the company or like have an interest in the upside of the company. And then it's like, now we have even more reason for them to be evangelists. Yeah. I was just listening to Bootstrapped Web uh, right before we hopped on the mic here. That was kind of Jordan's Jordan's point is like, this is a, he sees this as predominantly a marketing campaign because, you know, you it's one thing to build a, an email list of 7,000 people. It's a completely different thing to have 7,000 people who own a chunk of the company and are going to be, a different level of evangelist, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Um, totally. Yeah, that's, that yeah. Jordan Galgum is smart sometimes. Yeah, I like that. That's interesting to think of it as a marketing event. The crazy thing is like, yeah, it's it's marketing that costs doesn't cost you anything except in like as an option on, on future positive things happening. It's so like later if Gumroad sells, okay, some of that money now is returned to the investors instead of Sahil, but that seems fine. Yeah. Yeah, but I, I yeah I like in general the the kind of the access that this gives to ordinary people who have some money and want to make an informed decision about where to place an, an investment because this has historically been something that's very gated off you know you have to be an accredited investor and and all kinds of like limits in place and this really kind of changes the game um, and lets companies function more as like a quasi public company in one sense um, totally you know yeah, I think it's cool. I'm into it. Yep. How's Savvy Cal doing? Uh, it's doing pretty good. So I crossed a milestone this week. Ooh. Um, yeah. The 10K, the famous 10K MRR mark. Congratulations. Unlocked. Yeah. That's a big milestone. Yeah, I definitely felt felt good. I've been watching, you know, refreshing the metrics in in ProfitWell and uh and it kind of caught me by surprise. Uh a couple afternoons ago, just refresh the page and boom, there it was. It's kind of surreal. How long has it been now? So I broke ground on the code like about a year ago. It was beginning of March last Very year. Nice. Yeah. That's solid. And then when did you first start billing people? I think it was like June. Yeah. Onboarded the first couple of customers in June. So March to June and then and then publicly launched in September, like opened it up more broadly to the list. Um, yeah, right. Yeah, the product hunt launch was kind of the big, the big first lift, right? 
Yeah, so I just did a presentation on this uh, for MicroConf Remote, and so I pulled together some numbers from that, just kind of reflected back on it. And yeah, it added, in the month of January, added about 4K in MRR. So it was... It was quite a yeah, quite a lift um, for sure. What are your lessons learned? How do other people do this? <laughs> no, I'm like related to product hunt or just in general? Like no, just in general. I mean, I think there are probably a lot of listeners yeah. that would love to to reach that milestone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, so I have been thinking about this. Like, what makes what makes Savvy Cal different than the other things that that I've taken a run at in the past couple of years, right? And I think a couple things. You know, I've been investing in kind of a personal audience for a number of years through this podcast, through you know hanging out on Twitter and providing value where, where it makes sense and all that kind of stuff, right? So that was able to serve as kindling for, for the fire that is Savvy Cal, right? And I think intentionally choosing to build a product that, that broadly appeals to a lot of people who are already kind of in my first ring of, of audience really helped a lot. I'm never one who would say like one must build an audience in order to get a SaaS off the ground, but it certainly doesn't hurt, right? If they're able to kind of seed that, and um, and then you know, I think it's been difficult so far to quantify this, but I think that the just the viral nature of the product that its its branding is shared every time someone successfully uses the product has been like just a, a big factor in like helping that initial traction that was seeded by people from my audience starting to use the product and then it and then it pretty quickly like getting out there beyond that circle. You see this like through pretty strong word of mouth that's happening on Twitter, which is like a very hard it's a very hard thing to to like intentionally cultivate, but it just it's happening and it's really cool. I guess part of that is just like getting people to fall in love with the product and spread it around. And then I don't know, there's certain things like the like the product hunt launch was really successful and I obviously did everything I could to make it that way, but a large part of that is kind of serendipity, luck, timing, whatever, you know, that it that it happened to to get good lift that day and I wasn't competing against another product that took the limelight and you know, all that other mm-hmm. stuff. Um, mm-hmm. Have you tracked how many people sign up via like seeing Savvy Cal through someone else's thing? Is that is that trackable? Do you have like a interested in this sign up here kind of thing? I do. So if someone clicks the like scheduling by Savvy Cal link, or they or actually if they use the overlay my calendar feature, which is kind of the gateway, then it basically spins up an account from in the background, and we track that as like they're and they came in through the overlay, and we actually treat them differently with like onboarding emails we we keep it very minimal because you know they didn't necessarily intend to start using the product they were just trying to overlay on a link so like we have that and that doesn't the numbers don't look super impressive from that like there's you know a small percentage of people use that feature and then i've looked through the list of like people who have then converted into customer and come in that way and most of them are like people names that i recognize so like oh you were probably going to like sign up anyways like I don't think this was legitimately the first way you heard about it so I mean this goes to say like attribution is just so difficult and especially with like I've been using pretty privacy aware tooling also (laughs) you know so I'm not doing like the most aggressive tracking of all user activity and that just means I'm a little bit more in the dark about like getting the full picture of like all the touch points that people have with the product before signing up and what, like was their first touch point seeing a scheduling link and then coming back, you know, 5 days later or clicking a tweet or whatever, like I just 
I don't know. I feel like I'm in the dark, but it's like it's so hard to get that data, especially if you're not if you're trying to respect people's privacy and stuff. So, mm, mm-hmm. yeah, there is the, always the old you know ask them when they sign up trick. Yeah, yeah, and that's actually who brought that up to me. Oh, I think Corey mentioned that lately. Like, like yeah, you should just add a box to the to the onboarding. And yeah, we sh- we should do that. Yeah, we we used to have that. I took it out just to make the form shorter. But yeah, yeah I would I wouldn't mind adding that back in. I had that in the first onboarding email, and I don't, I don't feel like I was getting a good sense. Like the people who, it was kind of a self-selecting thing. The people who, who would email back and respond, usually they almost, almost, you know, nine out of ten times would say like, "Oh, I follow you on Twitter or I listen to the podcast." So it was like, it's like that's cool, but I'm hoping to hear from some of the people that that like legitimately didn't know me before. You know. Well, I think that just tells you what channels you actually have so far, right? That's true, but I would say a good portion of them, just looking through, like I don't recognize, don't recognize them from anywhere that I've seen them. You know, sure, uh, yeah, but you wouldn't recognize all your Twitter followers, right? Probably not. No, no, that's true. That's a good point. But yeah, I think the people who the people who are Twitter followers are just more likely to respond to an optional question sent in an email uh, versus people who don't don't know me from anywhere and just just wandered in to try the tool. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Totally. So you did like building an audience first. Wait until yeah. that debate. <laughs> I think it's a it's a mostly unproductive debate because yeah, it's like yeah. like anything, there's so many paths to to making something work, right? I've been noticing like this meta thing around these the debates of like you should build an audience first versus no, you don't need to build an audience first, or like you should talk about features. No, you should talk about benefits. No, you should talk about features. And like it's it's kind of like a TikTok, I think. Uh, like the old one, not the not the social network, where it's like, oh, a lot of people are kind of making this error. And so if you wanted to give some advice to the average person, here's the advice. And then that advice gets kind of widely disseminated and adopted. And then people are kind of making the opposite error. And so now people are like rightly point out, no, 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 this other side has merit too. And then everyone, and now there's like this fight. And it's like, yeah, yeah, no, this is never, it was never that one was correct and one was totally wrong. It's like if you're trying to give generic advice to people without knowing their context is, you know, what's a decent thing to say that's often right. And the thing that's often right changes over time as like the sort of common knowledge and best practices and things that everyone already has, has already heard uh, change in the world. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's so true. I mean, I think I think it can be I think you can take a step one step back from like the whole audience or not audience debate and just say like, Regardless of whether you use that or not, one should probably think about leveraging their unfair advantages the most they can, right? And and having an audience is one of those, but it's not the only one. There are other types that, that you could have. Yeah, I, I would even say it's like, you should probably figure out how you're going to get a couple hundred trials a month. If you're going to sell software, you have to sell, you know, you need a lot of leads. And so you're going to need to do something so that people who maybe are good customers find out about you. And, you know, look at your strengths and look at what you want to do and what works and have a plan for that distribution matters so i also got a, a random note from stripe about a week ago i was like hey we pre-approved you for a stripe capital loan and i was like oh this and i had actually just been talking to to somebody about, i was thinking about doing a, a a deal that would potentially bring in a lot of cash up front and and so then i was just in the mindset of like well that type of 
a type of deal is effectively like a, a form of financing, right? Like a way to a way to bring in cash in the door up front um, to enable enable you to do more things, make more bets on experiments or whatever. And so thinking about it that way, it's like I was having a conversation with with a with a friend, and we're like, well, I mean, something to consider at some point is is playing around with like you know revenue based financing or or some forms of debt basically to especially if you're growing and the the risk is pretty low like to get cash up front and be able to to use it for for stuff and so just when i got this like it's, it's a meager amount they were like between 2 and 4000 dollars and here's the terms paid back over 9 months i think and it's like effectively a 6% interest rate so it's like a couple hundred dollars in in loan fees and they auto deduct it from your revenue so it's like it's basically zero work on your part. It just skimmed off from MRR that comes in the door. And they just deposit the money right into your account. I didn't have like a burning need for this, but I was like, but I'm putting down, I just put down four grand on um, a podcast sponsorship experiment. So I'm like, yeah, might as well just replenish the coffers for that and just kind of get a feel for how this experience goes with, with Stripe Capital. And it was like super smooth. They like clicked the button in the UI that was like you're pre-approved and they're like, cool, give us a little more information. Like six hours later, they're like, "We're you're approved. The money should arrive in within a day or two. It was super smooth. So nice. Yeah, that's fun. That's cool. Yeah, I was just looking at our dashboard. Yeah, we have some offers there as well. Like it looks like there's like three different levels based on how much we would want to borrow and then what the fee would be and, and all that. I never think about potentially using this money for anything, but maybe we maybe we should. You know, especially if there's something that some marketing channel or something that you have that where you can basically insert dollars in and get more than <laughs> more than you put in back out like then it just comes down to a math equation on whether it makes sense to to use debt financing to to uh you know put money in that slot machine it looks like they're like the fee is like 11% or something on these these numbers that I'm seeing here so we could get you know x dollars and pay back 11% on of that in addition so yeah, so if we have bets that are better than that, we should probably be making them. I don't think about that enough. I think actually that's kind of a blind spot for me. Like I'm not used to thinking like, oh, we have this capital. How do we invest this capital in in your productive ROI? I think I'm more of the like, oh, that's that's profit. That's for that's <laughs> take that. That's the founders take that out, which is you know not the worst impulse, but it's like it could be you know yeah. There's interesting things mm-hmm. there too. Mm-hmm. Yep. And how aggressive you want to be on on reinvesting, but so oh, I was I thought that was cool and like it'll be interesting to see if there's, you know, if I if I end up getting some of these, you know, if like the podcasting stuff works out decently well, TBD on that um, because I think they're just going to start running some ads uh, in the next couple of weeks, then I could potentially see like doing more of that, and if and if I need funds to do that, then like I don't know, some loans like this seem like. Uh, perfectly reasonable so totally yeah I would, I'll, i'm super curious to hear the results on the, the the paid acquisition stuff we haven't done i don't think have we done any of this i don't think we've done any of this but i, it, I always keep coming back to like this is a thing we should at least test yeah yeah i kind of always want to keep a balance of like like experimenting with things that would potentially produce um, near-term gains like people like driving customers immediately to the website and potentially signing up and then also investing in stuff that is Longer term, like like producing content that that contributes to SEO or doing guest posts that get backlinks that over time accumulate. I've definitely been feeling in the last couple of weeks like we still have you know 
trials coming through the door, but they've definitely like cooled off a bit. And I think it's just by nature of the, you know, the product hunt traction stuff just kind of naturally, naturally cools a bit. And so I hate seeing that, you know, looking at the graphs, like graphs are still going up, but they're going up slightly slower. And I feel hmm. that, you know, mm-hmm. that's not as <laughs> um, Yeah. It's funny how like I can look at the slope of the curve of the trial graph and that like is very proportional to my mental state, which I don't like. I want to get the challenge is to get those fully decoupled, but good luck. That's going to, that'll be a whole, that's a whole life's work probably. (laughs) Maybe start with like a six month meditation retreat. Yeah, I know. Something like that. I've been feeling the need to like, all right, I got to do, I got to do some things that, that kind of get trial numbers back up a bit if if possible but then also like i feel like i can't be too focused on quick wins or or immediate term things because you could, i could find myself 6 months down the line like well if you had just started investing in this long term thing then it would be paying off now and so but it takes discipline i feel like having the discipline to like invest in stuff where it's like we're not going to see a return on this in a while so indeed yeah yeah but that's the long term game you want to play yeah yeah, that's what we all have to do. Yeah, so I think I told you before, our, our growth plan for this year is first two quarters on uh, cleaning the funnel up, tightening that up. So we're about to ship, um, actually, I think early next week should ship um, some onboarding improvements we've made. Kind of a, a little wizard to walk you through getting Tuple set up. We've sort of made the sign-in process a bit slicker. We've made the sign-up process a bit slicker. So that's going well and plan to do some more work on that next quarter but then the second half of the year is going to be all a lot of this like what you're doing like try some things test a bunch of channels try to be really rigorous about the analytics and see what's working and uh kind of f- figure out how do we really crank those the, the new trial numbers up mm-hmm. it'll be fun it'll be by fun the way email notes. email people yeah we'll definitely share it. yeah email people so yeah. far, our best day of trials <laughs> so this month so far, of course, has been after we emailed a bunch of people. Mm, yeah. Still good. I need to do more of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We're up to, speaking of email, up to 750 people on our Linux wait list. Nice. Which is pretty cool. That's cool. Yeah. Still going up. Excited for that. When do you think you start recruiting like, or inv- inviting in actual beta testers? That's a good question. Um, we just did the first audio only call, uh, which is pretty cool. That doesn't mean we're like, you know, anywhere near ready for prime time. I think even like a one way screen share, like if you can just join, that's kind of enough to at least get the first people in. Uh, so I, I, it might not be long, honestly. Um, we have a, we're doing our founders retreat for the quarter next week. So I think we'll probably talk about schedule then, but I wouldn't be surprised if we're within a month or two. Nice. Nice. Yeah. That's exciting, man. Yeah, it's cool. Pretty quick progress, all things considered. I feel like. Yeah, Spencer's a beast. Mm-hmm. He goes, he goes <laughs> but fast. But we knew that. Yeah, we yeah. knew that. That's not a shock. At least in pure raw numbers, adding Linux to our stable doubles our number of potential customers. Just a number of developers, at least. Not that they're all potential customers, but could be a big lever. I mean, it would be, it'd be awesome if that paid off that way. Like, I'm, I'm happy we're doing it to make it more useful for our existing customers and to make us available to more teams that make it feasible for more teams and whatnot. It would be very gratifying to also see, Oh, Hey, here's where Linux launched. And Oh, look at the new growth rate was achieved a couple months later as we, you know, hit those new, new people. Yep. Yep. That'd be, that'd be great. Yeah. Fun to see. 
All right. So before we wrap, I have a very mm-hmm. quick Overwatch update. Oh, yes, please do. Lay it on me. This is a recurring segment <laughs> as for a little bit. Um, so last night, I was commenting that like, I've noticed this thing. So I've been playing this game for like almost a year. Um, and, and a lot of this game is like figuring out where people are and like what they're doing. Like there's a lot of sound cues in the game. And I had always had this feeling that like it was really hard to tell where the sounds were coming from. And I was like, it always kind of feels like I would hear the sounds that meant something was happening or someone was over somewhere. And I like couldn't quite locate them in space. And so I'd have to like, kind of look around and figure it out. And it always felt kind of weird to me. And other people seemed to do this more easily than I did. And I was like, do my, are my headphones bad? Like, am I, do I have some setting turned on weird? Well, last night, I discovered that for the last year, I have been playing in mono. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so <laughs> I switched. I like eventually figured out how I had misconfigured things. I configured it correctly. And instantly, it was like a different game. Wow. And I was like, oh, my God. Yeah, it was just like (laughs) so much better. And like, again, like so much of this is just like, like knowing someone is over to your left and you need to like respond to them or like, like hearing that someone's behind you or it was just like, and like suddenly it was just like so much easier. It was like, well, duh. Like I literally, I basically took this like massive component of the game and shrunk it down to one dimension and made my life so much harder. Yeah. Well, maybe you've. I mean, maybe there are ancillary benefits to that. Like maybe you've you've built up other skills to compensate and now you're <laughs> exactly. going to be like this super player. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I'm hoping that like my rating jumps up now because like yeah. I, I have, I should be able to just like layer in this new ability basically. It's like you've been skiing without poles for the last year. And yeah. Like, <laughs> I've been on one ski uh, yeah. for a while. It's like, oh, wait a second. You're supposed to use two skis? Oh, okay. Yeah, this is way easier. What am I doing? Oh, funny. So, um, you know, not a, not a thing I like would have thought that someone needed to check in on for me. Yeah. It's not like a failure mode. It's like, Hey, heads up, make sure you're not playing a mono. Um, (laughs) Right. But, uh, here we are. Oh man. I'm going to partially blame how confusing windows is. Mm hmm. Um, so, you know, quick windows dig before we leave. Yeah. Yeah. But no, you're not building the windows client yet. So you can still dig at it. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. for now and then later it's gonna be great and i can't wait exactly yep cool all right uh notes of the show notes of the show can be found at autoproductpodcast.com thanks for listening see ya